Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just up to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. It's great to be back after a few weeks break and it's a really strange, strange day outside today. I hope everything's okay with all the smoke and you just wonder what it must be like down in the fire areas. A lot worse than we're getting here. But we soldier on. Today, part one of a longer interview with Brian Newman and Bruce Francis about their visit late last year to Jordan, Palestine and Ethiopia. Increased need for action to support Julian Assange as February the 24th grows even closer. Sasha Gillies-Lakakis' report on 2019 for Latin America. Violence greets the new year in the Middle East with Dr Tim Anderson. And reaction to Australian bushfires in the Pacific, the Pacific Nations, nations and the prospects for Australia's relations with the Pacific in the coming year. Now, Mr Kevin Healy for a couple more weeks, so let's go straight to Bruce and Brian. Late last year, Brian Newman and Bruce Francis returned from a visit to Jordan, Palestine and Ethiopia. So today, in coming weeks, we'll hear about their journeys and impressions of life in the three countries. We begin today with the plane journey to Jordan. And my first question was about the contribution of Palestinians to the culture and economy of the Kingdom of Jordan. My understanding is that the Jordanian population is nearly half Palestinian anyway. But yes, I think that uh, Palestinians have been the educated engineers and others who've done a lot of the construction and building in Jordan, but also, you know, disproportionately across the Gulf, really. Can you see anything of the Palestinian culture in, in Jordan? It's quite difficult to differentiate because there is so much similarity because there's so many people from Palestine living in Jordan. It was originally one country. So I guess I didn't experience any direct things. I'd say the difference, the main difference, is probably between the traditional Bedouin Mm. sort of part of Jordan, who I think are very supportive of the monarchy. That's certainly what a few people told us. And the rest of the population... There's no, you know, differences in terms of looking at people uh, and you often you're talking to someone and you actually then realise that they have a Palestinian connection. I'd probably say that of that part of the population that's urban, it may even be more than 50% of the population has a strong Palestinian connection. Certainly I got the feeling that along the border that there's a lot of Palestinians living sort of like close to Palestine. Yeah, but... It doesn't feel... I think there's a little bit of tension sometimes before the, between the more traditional Bedouin and the Palestinian just because they have different sort of interests, political interests. But it doesn't feel like there's a lot of tension on the surface. 
you were there for four days. Where did you go apart from the capital? So from Amman, we went down to Petra to visit the sites there and then to Wadi Rum, which is south of Petra, uh, which is a big desert area that's quite big in terms of tourism as well as Petra. They're the two major places that people go to in Jordan. They're pretty spectacular. Wadi Rum is one of my absolute favourite places because it's... Um, what is it? it? It's a desert. Um, it's quite orange, so it has some similarities to the centre here in Australia. But in the part, which is sort of like the touristy part, there are these big sort of rock formations in the middle of the desert. So they're spotted all around. So they're not like Uluru or Katajuta. But there's loads of them. So everywhere you look, you'll see there'll maybe be up to a dozen of them in your vision. They're quite big. Some of them have sand blown up on them. You know, you can climb them and get these fabulous views, interesting formations. And then it's flat in between. So it's sort of like desert and then these sort of rocks and then desert and a rock and you can spot them all around. So it's very beautiful, very, very, very beautiful. And we stayed that night in a Bedouin camp. So staying out in the desert was really nice. Did you get a sense of what it would have been like living there thousands of years ago when you look at places like Petra? I don't know how old Petra is. but Petra is pre-Roman in terms of the Roman Empire, but was eventually conquered by the Romans. Very sophisticated in terms of... There's still a couple of kilometres of road that you can see. The carvings into the rock faces are amazing, you know, columns and highly decorative stuff. Caves sort of, you know, type housing, which, you know, is big and spacious. Um, uh, aqueducts, sophisticated water systems. Pre-Roman? Yeah. Whether that's... I think it was pre-Roman, but then I think also built on by the Romans. So very technologically advanced for the period. And it stretches over a number of kilometres. It's a huge big, you know, you struggle to see it. Well, you don't see it in a day. So, you know, to see all of it, you'd need to spend a good two days walking the whole time um, to see it. And, and all, like Wadi Rum... The colours are amazing. It's all this sort of pinky, orange-coloured rock. It's so spectacular when the light hits, especially. Is there any vegetation? Too dry. Too dry. It's desert country. Yeah, almost no trees in Petra at all, and certainly in Wadi Rum. Occasionally you'd get a tree right up against where the rocks start because it's in shade, but beyond that, just red pinky red dirt. And the amazing thing about Petra is that to get into it, there's about a kilometre walkway, which is between two rock faces, and it's basically the width of a road. So you're just walking down this space, which varies because it's natural, uh, varies in width, but nowhere would it be more than 10 or 12 metres. It's been smoothed off to come back, uh, but it's a whole kilometre in. And then once you get in there, it's sort of all built within this big valley. So it's got this natural protection sort of thing with this sort of really narrow way in and almost impossible to get in any other way because it's so steep. 
So that's their protection. Yeah, yeah, well, it's their protection. I mean, obviously the Romans breached it, but for a long time no one breached it. Then it was on to Palestine. What's the journey? The journey was longer than we had anticipated. Um, uh, so we were going to cross at King Hussein Bridge. King Hussein Bridge is about a 45-minute car ride from Amman. And we were told that the border closed at 1 o'clock. So we got there at 10.30. It was already closed because it was a, apart from being a Friday and so normally closing early. It was a Jewish holiday, so they'd close it even earlier. Even though it was closing at 11, we got there at 10.30, we still weren't allowed to go across because it took too long. So that precipitated quite a expedition, really, because then we were keen to get there. We then had to make an hour and a half's journey north to another border crossing, which isn't available for Palestinians, but is available for internationals, which closes at 6 p.m., so the fact that the other one closes or close, was closed by 10.30 is really just another one of those little things to do to the Palestinians. So we go north and we cross over. We catch a taxi to the north and we have to catch a taxi to where immigration is, which is another, you know, a kilometre. Then we have to catch a taxi the other side, and the taxi because we're now technically in Israel, took us to an Israeli settlement where we then had to try and get transport back into Palestine, which proved to be exceedingly difficult. And we ended up catching another taxi which took us to Jerusalem and then we had to catch a bus to Ramallah. So something that you could drive from Amman to Ramallah in under an hour and a half. We left at um, about 9 40 and we got to Ramallah about 8 p.m. A horrendous day. Not a good start. <laughs> and and yeah, but as Bruce said, it was one of those things that symbolizes what you see in Palestine all the time. You know, we tried and tried to get information about when the border crossing was closing, almost impossible to get. So you get that whole way there and then you just told no. Nah. And then you have to find an alternative. It's just that daily oppressiveness that is so visible in things like that. It was a great relief to get to Ramallah. If we hadn't have been there before, I think we would have been even more lost than we were in terms of trying to make the crossing. But we sort of knew where we were going and all that, and we knew where the bus station was in Jerusalem and all those sorts of things that um, made it bearable. The good thing about it is that we arrived in Palestine having had a small taste of what it's like to be a Palestinian. <laughs> it's about the best that could be said for it. Now, you were a part of a tour of um, 37 people. Yep. Can you just talk for a couple of minutes about who these people were and what their journey was to get there and what they hoped to get out of their 10 days walking trip? The organisation that we went on the walk with is called the Amos Trust. It's a London-based NGO aid organisation. It's um, a Christian-based organisation. They do work in a number of countries, but particularly in Palestine. So they run programmes in, in the West Bank and in Gaza. Part of the work that they do is organising tours to Palestine. They do a range of them. They do cooking tours, they do just familiarisation tours, they do 
house rebuilding trips where people go and rebuild houses that have been demolished. So they do a range of these things. And in 2017, they arranged the just walk to Jerusalem from London to Jerusalem to commemorate the Balfour Declaration. For this walk we were on, it was half of a walking trail called the Masa Ibrahim Trail. They advertised it and organised it for mainly for people from Britain and there were just a few from Australia and New Zealand that joined it. It's part of that sort of introduction to Palestine. I mean, most of the people who came have some connection to the issue, but a lot of them are also like really keen walkers, so it's a way of actually combining the two interests um, and bringing them together. So on the walk, which was, we did 10 days, five of those nights we had homestays, uh, one night in a Bedouin um, community and five nights in hotels. We had two local guides, although they changed um, we had two lots um, over the, the trip who are amazingly across well, the track, but also you know across the local community, and we met with a couple of local organisations along the way, so the good part about when we went was, it was also olive picking season uh, so everyone is out picking olives. Um, so people go out as families from, you know, grandma or great-grandma down to, you know, the newborn baby. And so there was lots of people out and about as well in the countryside to sort of come across and, you know, say hello to and, and you know, have brief conversations with. When you say a track, what do you mean by a track? It's marked. I wouldn't do it myself you get... Very lost, or you'd take a long time finding sort of between the markers, uh, and some points are particularly not fabulously marked. So it's not necessarily a, mar- a track, as in you know a, a, a flat bit with gravel on it or whatever. But there's clearly a, 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 a track there. It's been just developed over the last seven years, so it's slowly becoming more widely known and more widely used. And you can walk the whole thing, which I think is 22 days, or you can walk bits of it one day or whatever. We certainly saw a number of other groups who were walking just day bits, uh, and then our first guide was returning and then coming with another group who were walking the whole 22 days. Basically goes down the middle of the West Bank from the very north right to the bottom. What's the purpose of the track? It's an historic track. The idea around it is to give people a sense of Palestine. There's a lot of it where there were trails, so it sort of combines some of those trails. Yeah, it is interesting in that it, it is virtually down the middle of sort of Palestine, even though it's got a bend in it, as it sort of bends down. Yeah, I think it just gives people a sense of what Palestine's like. Certainly for us, we'd been and spent most of our time in Palestine before either in the centre or in the south. We'd walked the northern part, and quite different in terms of giant agriculturally rich valleys um, so the trail sort of follows the sort of the top of the hills but you just had 
views for days and days and days over these amazingly productive valleys full of crops. One of the ideas behind the development of the trail is the popularity of all the Caminos in Europe for all the people who walk and the potential of building a tourist industry and we certainly saw signs of that. There were guest houses that we stayed at along the way that people clearly have come to rely on the income that comes from people doing the walk coming into their villages and so there's there's a sense that infrastructure is being developed along the trail as well as it becomes more well known and more popular. I think one of the things for me about the homestays and we're in a very big group so you know most places there's a couple of places which take homestays but one one of the towns we were going to stop in, there wasn't enough accommodation, so we had to go back to the town we had the day before. Or places we stayed in, we're obviously staying in the overflow accommodation, which you know was good, but they just weren't didn't have people that often. But it was fantastic in terms of every Palestinian household has their own story around what the occupation means. So, you know, you come to one religion, they talk about, you know, when the Israelis, you know, something happened and the Israelis came in and sort of arrested two shepherds and then brought them back because they hadn't done anything. But they still cut off all the services to the whole village for two weeks. You go to the next one and then on the way out you walk past the house which Israeli settlers came and firebombed. The mother and father and one of the kids died. The baby, 90% burns, multiple operations to deal with the burns. is now an orphan who still lives in the town and is looked after by relatives. But that's sort of their experience. So every place has their own sort of story around you know what the occupation actually means or you know how long it takes to get somewhere or you know the threat to their olive trees so from that sort of point of view you get to walk during the day and then you get to have these conversations at night and just uh, I guess share the amazing warmth and hospitality of Palestinians which you know given that they are a people who are under occupation, facing daily humiliations, daily actions which you know make life difficult. The amazing generosity of people, you know, the number of olive pickers who wanted to give away all their coffee to to provide coffee for 37 strangers wandering through, um, because you know that's as a Palestinian what you do. <laughs> it's quite amazing. And. In the homestays, families always made sure that there was often the next generation down there to be with us because their English was better than the older people, even though they could all speak English well and Arabic was almost non-existent. Um, But there was this real sense that people made the effort so that you could actually have real conversations and talk about stuff that was important. You've been listening to Brian Newman and Bruce Francis talking about their recent visit to Jordan and Palestine. On the program next week, we'll pick up with a continuation of their visit to Palestine. And the following week, it'll be Ethiopia. And this is 3CR, and it's 19 minutes past four. Next, a report card for the end of 2019 for a number of South American 
Nations, compiled by Sasha Gillies-Lakakis from the Latin American program on 3CR. Latin America has been at the forefront of world events throughout this year, more than it has for a long time. Multiple elections, important democratic processes, social unrest and environmental concerns have all thrust this part of the world into the spotlight. So let's take a look at some of 2019's Latin American news highlights. We should begin with the island of Cuba, often the focus of our program, which has been at the centre of politics in the Caribbean basin this year. Most significantly, we have seen the Trump administration in the United States significantly increase the power of the illegal sanctions and blockade on the island. The most notorious instance of these increased pressures has been Trump's decision to apply the full powers of the Helms-Burton Act, which allows US entities to sue organisations and companies dealing in property nationalised during the 1959 revolution. Travel bans, including the prohibition of US cruisers to Cuba and the cessation of all flights except those to Havana, have further harmed Cuba's tourism industry, almost completely resetting relations between these two Cold War foes. In spite of these difficulties, Cuba in 2019 has surged ahead with its socialist program. Most obviously, the island nation has ratified a new constitution in one of the most significant expressions of democratic participation in the region. A voter turnout of 84% overwhelmingly voted upon the adoption of a new guiding document for the island that enshrines the rights of education, health care, work and housing, alongside making significant reforms to economic and political administration. These include the creation of the position of Prime Minister, providing greater autonomy to the provinces and creating a streamlined regulation of the private sector. Cuba's closest ally and fraternal nation, Venezuela, has similarly been attacked by the United States in numerous unprecedented acts of aggression. At the beginning of the year, the unelected, largely unknown right-wing lawmaker, Juan Guaido, declared himself president of the country in an attempted constitutional coup d'etat. This move was rejected by the Venezuelan people, so the violent right-wing opposition resorted to an attempted assassination of Nicolas Maduro and then called on the military to betray the legitimate government of the country. Well, Nicolas Maduro is still alive and well, and the military has time and time again rejected the bribes of the United States and Venezuelan opposition, reiterating their support for the Bolivarian Revolution. The US, for its part, has sanctioned most major industries in Venezuela, as well as CLAP, the country's chief food distribution organisation. These are cruel, inhumane attempts to force regime change that amount to genocide against the Venezuelan people. An estimated 40,000 Venezuelans have died as a result of US sanctions. And just months ago, the US installed a total blockade on Venezuela, much like that of Cuba. While it seems that at the end of this year attempts to topple Maduro have at least calmed down, hostility from the US and right-wing Latin American governments remain a threat to Venezuela, and we can be sure that foreign attempts to crush the Bolivarian revolution will continue well into 2020. While it is certainly true that the left has receded in Latin America over this year, largely due to foreign meddling and direct violent intervention from local elites, there have been some significant victories for the forces of progress in 2019. For a start, January saw the beginning of left-leaning AMLO's presidential mandate in Mexico, really the first progressive government in Mexico's history. Wage increases, education reform and national decision-making via direct referendum are just some of the reforms that have characterised AMLO's mandate, and he remains very popular at the end of his first year in power. A refreshing change in Mexico's foreign policy has also occurred under his mandate this year. 
most notably his publicly expressed support for Venezuela's Maduro throughout the entire US-backed regime change attempt, and has met personally with leftist leaders from across the continent, including the leaders of Cuba and Argentina. Now, this is not to say that AMLO's rule has been entirely smooth. Far from it. Across the year, the New Mexican administration has faced a range of devastating issues, from fuel theft and a deteriorating security situation to constant conflict with Mexico's indigenous people over proposed mega-projects that Aboriginal communities maintain directly threaten their way of life and the surrounding environment. Another issue still affecting the entire Central American region has been the continuation of an unprecedented mass migration since last year, largely from Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador, as thousands of men, women and children continue to flee utter poverty and violence in their home countries to the United States, in the hope that a better life awaits them there. The reasons behind this migration are multifaceted and tragic, yet all stem from the following issues endemic corruption, horrific violence, unemployment and poverty. The three main contributor countries have all seen intense US interference in support of local oligarchies that have seriously abused their populations. In Honduras, a US-backed military regime has fostered some of the most repressive conditions in the world, while neighbouring Guatemala is riven with military corruption and El Salvador by brutal gang violence. Thousands of Central Americans have fled through Mexico up towards the United States, a journey fraught with peril as disease, hunger and people trafficking have all taken their toll. In Mexico, some towns have embraced these new arrivals, while others have reacted with outright hostility, even violently forcing the Central Americans out of cities and back onto the road. Unfortunately, these migrants have faced their toughest challenge upon arriving at the US border. The migrants have been detained by ICE and other US authorities in what can only be described as concentration camps. Earlier this year, several deaths due to starvation and abuse have been reported alongside, alongside thousands of sexual assault instances, mostly against minors. This is made all the more horrific considering that children have often been separated from their parents by the US authorities, creating a situation of terror, uncertainty and abuse that has yet to be resolved. Further south in South America, a mixture of good and bad has taken place. In October, the left-wing Peronist coalition was swept to victory in Argentina's general elections. Fernandez, new president of the nation, has already fulfilled some of his campaign promises, declaring social and economic emergencies, intervening in the economy to halt rampant inflation, and controlling prices on essential goods, including food and medicine. This came after years of neoliberal failure under the McCree government. During this period, homelessness, unemployment and poverty reached their highest levels ever since the late 20th century and the economy was marred by staggering debt and inflation. It is little wonder that the Argentinian people chose to reject the neoliberal path forced upon them by the nation's elite. On the flip side, neighbouring Bolivia has just a few weeks ago been subject to a brutal coup orchestrated by a minuscule right-wing opposition and their allies in the military. Former Bolivian President Evo Morales, renowned for implementing a range of progressive socialist reforms that transformed his nation from the poorest in South America to a thriving developing nation, was widely regarded to have won Bolivia's October elections by a wide margin. So wide, in fact, that there was no need to call a second round of voting. The, organi the Organization of American States, performing its role as a U.S. tool, cried foul, claiming that Morales had rigged the elections before the vote had even been fully counted. 
It is important to note that all other international observers in Bolivia at the time indicated that the elections were following a predictable pattern that would see Morales swept to victory by rural supporters. In other words, the OAS lied. Regardless, the Bolivian opposition took to the streets for weeks, inciting violence and burning government buildings down in an attempt to force Morales to resign. When this failed, the Bolivian right-wing enlisted the aid of the military and police force, which turned on Morales and began a brutal crackdown on his supporters, including at least three massacres. Eva Morales was flown to Mexico by AMLO's administration, and he has since moved to Argentina. Though the Bolivian coup government now rules the country, led by the extreme Christian fanatic Janine Añez, protests against the violent and illegitimate regime are continuing. Protests are in fact continuing across Latin America, where right-wing regimes are present, with resistance to neoliberal economic programs the strongest they've ever been. Colombia has been racked by national demonstrations from unions, indigenous organisations and student groups outraged at the killings being perpetrated by the Duque government. Additionally, extremely unequal taxation and free market policies have led to incredibly difficult conditions for the majority of Colombians, leading to strikes paralysing the country on several occasions throughout 2019. Similarly, in neighbouring Ecuador, Lenin Moreno's traitorous neoliberal agenda has been rejected in full by the Ecuadorian people, who took to the streets earlier this year in Ecuador's major towns and cities. Initially caused by Moreno's announcement that the fuel prices would be raised yet again, making the commodity unaffordable for many, indigenous organisations joined forces with urban workers to stage mass demonstrations. So powerful was this movement that Moreno and his government had to flee to another city, temporarily moving their centre of administration. The most recent rejection of neoliberalism in Latin America has come from Chile, where protests drawing hundreds of thousands to the streets have entered their second month. These protests began over extremely unreasonable public transport hikes. They very quickly evolved into a criticism of horrific police brutality and the need for a new constitution. Chile's current governing document remains the same as it did under the Pinochet dictatorship. Not only has Chilean President Piñera's popularity plummeted, with under 10% of the population supporting his mandate, but there is the possibility that he will be charged for crimes against humanity due to the conduct of the military and police under his watch. Finally, and most concerningly, Brazil's Amazon rainforest, a lifeline for all living things on this planet, has been burning this year, with huge swathes of the forest reduced to ash under the watch of the fascist Bolsonaro government. Cattle ranchers, soybean farmers and other multinationals emboldened by Bolsonaro's pro-business anti-environment policies took to clearing vast tracts of land for commercial use, though this quickly devolved into horrific blazes around the country. Indigenous communities have been targeted by these profiteers and several individuals killed for defending their land. While the vast majority of the fires have now been extinguished, there is the very real possibility that an event of this type could happen again, given the fact that Bolsonaro not only refuses to acknowledge the existence of climate change, but just doesn't seem to care about Brazil's immense ecological importance. In terms of what we can expect next year, that remains somewhat unclear. We can certainly predict that the United States will continue its political and economic war against Cuba, Venezuela and their allies, though I suspect that anything short of a military invasion will not be able to dislodge these popular governments. The reaction against neoliberalism has been particularly powerful this year, and as conditions continue to deteriorate in countries like Chile, Brazil and Colombia, we can expect greater demands for genuine change. 
Though, as has been proven by the case of Bolivia, the reaction to such progressive movements will be equally as powerful and very ruthless. So we must hope that Latin America can, bit by bit, free itself from the shackles of imperialism and neoliberalism. Cuba and Venezuela, among others, have succeeded, so I see no reason why the rest of Latin America can't either. And that's Sasha Gillies-Lakagas. And do listen to the Latin American Update program every Sunday at 10.30 for more information about Latin America. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. After 10 years of detention, home, prison, most of it in a room in the Ecuadorian embassy in London and now in a prison cell in Belmarsh Prison in London, a prison built specifically for terrorists and facing extradition to the US. I'm speaking about Australian journalist Julian Assange, founder of WikiLeaks, with activist and broadcaster Jacob Gregg, who came into the studio late last week. And we talked first about the now imminent hearing date for extradition, the 24th of February. Very soon, the um, 24th of February um, in London, the trial for his extradition begins. Now, that trial initially had five days to proceed. When you consider everything around this case and all the legal precedents that will be set by this case, five days is ridiculous. Um, Julian's legal team has asked for an extension of time. The Americans have said, no, they don't want an extension of time. They want to get it over as quick as possible. He's not a US citizen. No. He's not a UK citizen. No. He's an Australian citizen. Yes, How does it work out? Well, that's what everybody in the world is trying to work out, mate. Let's just take Julian and the US and the UK out of of the question. As Bob Carr pointed out recently, there have been people who have been exposing the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province. Those documents about what they're doing there have been leaked by not Chinese nationals. Now, just suppose an Australian national... Just suppose a, an Australian national was involved in leaking those documents and was picked up in, say, I don't know, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, New Zealand, Malaysia, anywhere. And the Chinese said, we're going to extradite him to face 175 years in a Chinese prison for shedding light on the war crimes, on the genocide committed by the Chinese government against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. I don't think... There's anybody in the country, anybody in the world outside of China, perhaps, who would say that that's an, that's an, an appropriate response. But yet, because it's America, we're saying whatever you like. We had Australian journalists, travel writers, but journalists nonetheless, jailed in Iran. We had our foreign minister go over and demand their release. When um, James Rickardson was in Cambodia, we demanded his release. It's not like there's no precedent for the Australian government becoming involved and yet the Australian government is saying our hands are tied. Their hands are tied in Uncle Sam's apron strings. In those circumstances how can his legal team work? 
Well, it's very hard for his legal team to work. We do know just down last month, Julian was allowed to give evidence to the Spanish, to a Spanish judge on the allegations. Well, it's more than allegations, you know, um, newspapers all around the world, no one's denied it. Uh, but nonetheless, they're called allegations that a Spanish security firm working for the CIA and was bugging Julian's meetings in the Ecuadorian embassy with his legal team. You know, right down to having microphones in the women's toilets at the Ecuadorian embassy. So how can his legal team work when we have a situation where their discussions with their client have been monitored by the prosecutor? This is outrageous. In Victoria, we have a situation with, um, what do they call a lawyer ex, um, Nicola Gobbo, everyone knows who she is now, was giving information on her clients to the Victorian police. And the fact that we know the Victorian police had inside information that breached client-lawyer confidentiality has led already to the release of two people. One of them, a murderer. No one is questioning the fact that he committed the murders. But they're saying what the actual line is, we know he's a murderer, but because we broke client-lawyer confidentiality, it wasn't a fair trial, therefore we had to let him out. Yet, you know, I'm just suggesting, and we're just suggesting, that the Australian government, not just the Australian government, the Victorian government, step in and demand that Julian Assange is granted the same legal processes that we give to organised crime murderers in this state. Well, there's many people around the world now asking just that, isn't there? Yes, yes, they, they are. But Australia's ears remain closed. America is saying they don't care. Well, what America says, everything. we don't care, we'll do what we like. And um, the British are saying, well, they're not going to upset the United States. They're saying it's a legal process, but we can't find precedent for this kind of legal process. We have a situation where um, the same magistrate, um, Bretzer, heard a case where a Dutch national admitted to murder, admitted to murder in Holland, and he was released on bail and not extradited to Holland. And yet Julian is not only in jail, but in a jail that was built for terrorists. There is absolutely no legal reason for him to be in there. And my personal perspective is that as long as we argue the legalities of the case, it's almost like giving some credence that they have any legal ground whatsoever to stand on. He's being held illegally by the United Kingdom government at the behest of the United States government and the Australian government is doing bugger all to intervene in the situation. And in a, a system, as you said, a, a, a jail that's built for terrorists and the conditions there, I'd imagine, are not like a four-star hotel. Jails anywhere are not four-star hotels. But, of course, there are different in scales. And this, this cell, this, this prison, um, is purposely built to hold the worst of the worst. And he's currently in the um, hospital wing where they're medicating him. He can't get medical support. He can't get adequate legal support. It was only last month. Mind you, he was taken there in May. And it was only last month, December, might have been the end of November actually, that he was given access to a computer to help organise his legal defence. And he's only 
got access to the computer for, you know, very limited periods. There's absolutely doesn't appear to me that they're even pretending to be acting justly. And, of course, his health condition mitigates what he can do on the computer now. Yeah, his health, his... his look, I can't say too much about his health except as much to say that if he's not out, he's going to die in prison. He's going to die in prison, if not in Belmars, as soon as he gets over to the United States. Because if you think Belmars prison is bad, or whether you're putting him in the United States will be one, you know, the United States amongst the most horrendous prison conditions in the Western world. There's no reason for us to believe that Julian will see out the year in his current health. He needs not only to get out of Belmars, he needs to come home and he needs every medical assistance that the Australian government and the Australian people can give him. And there's no legal reason why he can't come home, is there? There's no legal reason whatsoever why he can't come home. If the Australian government stood up for itself and said, hey, give us our citizen back, the United Kingdom, the United States would have a hard time denying it. He's not accused of anything. He's served his... He served his time. time. Yeah, he's being held so that the United States can extradite him, so that he can be accused of a whole lot of things under the under Treason Act in the United States, an act which basically was set up during the First World War and has hardly ever been used. Now, I just want to point out at at this point, there still seems to be a, a fair bit going around the media that he ran to the Ecuadorian embassy to avoid. Um, allegations of sexual misconduct in Sweden. At the time, WikiLeaks and Julian said the reason he's seeking asylum is because the Swedish allegations are trumped up and the only reason they want him to go to Sweden is that he can be extradited to the United States to face a grand jury which we know has already been impaneled. This is ten years ago, or nine and a half years ago. It was just before um, Human Rights Day, oddly enough. Um, in December 2010. Can I stop you there? What actually is a grand jury? A grand jury is empanelled of citizens, ordinary citizens, who insist that... What's the way of putting it? What they do is it's different to the prosecution system we have here where the state actually lays a charge. They empanel a grand jury if they believe something is going wrong to investigate a matter. And so this is what's been impanelled. It sounds fairer, jury of your peers and all that kind of stuff, but this is being held, this has been impanelled in a court in West Virginia, the nearest court to the Pentagon, and it's entirely made up, we believe, because it's still secret, they haven't admitted it exists, except through documents that ironically WikiLeaks has leaked, of Department of Defence and Intelligence Agency employees. Julian will get to America, the grand jury will say he needs to stand trial on this offence and that offence and that offence and then he'll stand a show trial. And then you've got Chelsea Manning in jail indefinitely. Chelsea's still in jail indefinitely. You know, she's in jail because she's refusing to testify against Julian. All right, so hats off to her. The amount of the amount of trauma that that, um, that woman has already suffered and when you think, I think she turned 32 around Christmas Day or might have been Christmas Eve and it's 10 years so she was only 21, 22 years old when the whole thing started so she spent what, you know 
you and I would consider the entirety of her adult life at this stage, behind bars for the crime of exposing United States war crimes. And I think, again, we need to, we need to put into perspective exactly what she exposed, and that's things like the collateral murder video, where we saw American military in Apache attack helicopters strafing civilians, journalists, and the medical crews that went to support them, and the kids who were with them. In no uncertain terms, there's no ambiguity about it. I assume most people have seen the collateral murder video now. And that is why she's in jail. That is why Julian's in jail. And there's a lot more apart from that, though. And a lot more. Look, um, you know, this week we're seeing climate protests around the country. And it's probably important to to point out at this at this stage that even before the collateral murder and the... Uh, and global intelligence files and the Clinton emails and all the rest of them, WikiLeaks exposed the way the United States was undermining the Copenhagen Accord by offering money left, right and centre. To this day, all you need to do is go to wikileaks.org and you could read the actual transcripts of what these diplomats are saying to each other about how give this one 30 million over here and they won't vote for that. And, you know, and then Morales, of course accepted the money and then said, but it's nothing to do with climate change and kept what he was doing. There are um, cables that's, that point to that being one of the reasons the Americans are so big on destabilising Bolivia. What WikiLeaks has done has exposed not just the war crimes, they exposed a whole lot of things. Scientology, they exposed all the papers of that to start with. They exposed, as I say, the Copenhagen Accords or the, the undermining of it. They continue to expose things, like just recently, for example, it's updated just the other day, papers from the OPCW, the Office for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, um, showing that the reports that they produced that showed the Syrian regime used chemical weapons against its its citizens in Douma only took into account half of the reports they had. They just dismissed a whole lot of other facts that so the Syrian government were not behind the chemical attacks. And I'm not standing up for the Syrian government. What I'm saying is that might have been the Syrians, it might not have been the Syrians. But the OPCW report should be a dispassionate factual report. And the latest draft of WikiLeaks releases has showed that the OPCW report is anything but neutral. And that report has been used a number of times already to justify attacks on Syria. Well, if you're going to treat Julian the way they are and the way they have been for what he's done, what about the current head of WikiLeaks? Because you're just talking about the things that they've produced since Kristen. Julian. Yeah, well, yeah. when are they going to grow him? Well, he's very careful. He was very nervous about coming to Australia, to be honest, and he was um, obviously, while he was here, we had a whole lot of protections in place and a whole lot of like it was, um, I'm a trained security consultant. We used everything we could to make sure that he was safe. So he really does fear. Of course he fears. He's, he's, he's not an idiot. He's very scared. But he said that um, if people didn't do things because they were scared, then, you know, well, on the positive side, peop- there'd be no activists in the world, you know. I mean, there's also the point of people who didn't, didn't do things because they were scared, then... 
half the inventions modern society relies on wouldn't exist. No one would have gotten the first aeroplane or the car, you know. He is scared. Not only um, Christian, but there are a lot of people involved in supporting WikiLeaks, in supporting Julian, who feel they're under threat. We know our communications are being monitored. One of our um, friends, um, Somerset Bean, has um, been leaked a document from Google where the American government has requested all his files and all his information. We know we're being followed. We know there are police operatives in Melbourne, for example, undermining the whole thing. Everybody is naturally scared. I mean, if I, I got pulled over for a random breath test a few nights back, and it went through my mind, you know, and it's, and it's not, and, and I'm nobody, right? But um, once you get involved in supporting WikiLeaks and supporting Julian, then anything can happen. Throughout Europe, people have been picked up. Ola Binney, of course, was arrested. People are disappearing, like, into jails for any number of things. And a lot of people, people who are assisting with these with things, might not actually be picked up because of anything they're doing with Julian or WikiLeaks. They're picked up because they've got an outstanding matter of smoke and a joint 12 years ago. And to turn around and say, that's because they're doing this, that and the other, sounds like paranoia. But it's happening repeatedly. What happens when you have demonstrations here in Melbourne? Well, we're calling one for Saturday the 22nd of February at the State Library of Victoria. Um, what we're calling on is for the Australian government to intervene. We're calling on Scott Morrison to grow some balls, basically, and stand up to his counterparts and say, we want our bloke back. He's our man, he's our citizen, bring him back to Australia. And then, fair enough, once he's in Australia, under the Australian judicial process, there'd be any number of ways, any number of ways, means and methods for the Australian government, for the American government, to request that he's heard for espionage charges. But the way they've got him in a terrorist cell, without charge, after 10 years of detention, home detention, prison, most of it in the Ecuadorian embassy and now in a terrorist prison cell with absolutely no charge. I'm oh, sorry, that's a lie. He did have a charge of skipping bail. But you can't be charged with treason if you're not a citizen. Well, that would be my argument and that's Julian's lawyer's arguments too. But that whole question presupposes the existence of justice in the United States judicial system and I think you and I and most of the listeners would accept that there is very little. If he survives the trip to the US, what sort of a legal team will he have? He's got a great legal team. Will they be able to go and represent him there? We believe so. We believe so, although we believe they'll have such severe restrictions put on them because of under the rubric of national security and safety they won't be able to be able to say what they want to say. And we hear in the United States people, you know, people are in closed courts. It happens here too, closed courts, like it did with Witness K and Bernard Collar and the rest of it, and Dave McBride. And they say it's closed courts because of national security issues. Now, if they say that for things like Dave McBride and Witness K, there's no doubt they're going to say it about Julian Assange. But the bottom line is that nobody can point to a single person that has been hurt by a single civilian that has been hurt by WikiLeaks revelations. 
Well, you could think of many, many civilians who have been saved because Absolutely. of their Absolutely. exposures. You can think of a whole lot of congressmen and military people and diplomats and corporate people who have had their reputations damaged. But that's what the rough and tumble of public life's about, surely. Yeah, if you can put a break on what they're doing, yeah, and that's what yeah, probably one of the reasons why they expose all these things. So, you know, if you keep on doing it, we'll just keep on exposing it. And I think I think so. And you know, at the moment, as we're speaking, there's talk. You know, people are the warmongers, the hawks, are thumping their chests about about Iran, and are we going to go to war against Iran? Are we not going to go to war against Iran? I'd, the bigger picture is we are at war. I was talking to a friend yesterday and said, do you think we'll go to war? I said, we're already at war. And she said, what, I'm in a real war? I said, what, where white people get killed? Because there is a third world war at the moment that's being waged on people of colour all across the Middle East and in Africa. But to get back to the point, I don't think we will get to a hot shooting war with Iran. And a big part of that, a huge part of that, has got to be that since... WikiLeaks has um, released things like the collateral murder video. The world knows what really goes on. And I think prior to that, there was a, you know, an understanding or, or, or an assumption that that's what happened. But since not just WikiLeaks, but David McBride's revelations about the SAS in Afghanistan and going back to Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers where um, he was talking about an undeclared war in Laos and Cambodia and the fact that Nixon's advisers had advised, or sorry, Johnson's advisers had advised him against maintaining the war because they said it was one that you're never going to win. And so people were aware that all their American and Australian, not to mention the Vietnamese, troops who died in the American war in Vietnam did so with the people calling the shots knowing that they didn't have a hope in winning it and I think the actions of whistleblowers like Daniel Ellsberg like Julian Assange, like Chelsea Manning, like David McBride are a big part of why the American government is a little bit risk averse to go into a full, an all out shooting war at the moment and of course we have a um, President Trump who was uh, what can you say about him as big a... can't think of the appropriate word for, for Radio Jan. Um, as nasty as he is, is very risk-adverse and has never been part of the military war machine. He's been part of the capital system, sure. But, you know, the other question I think that... I think I've got to say is, um, where would we be if Hillary Clinton were President of the United States right now? I think we'd already be in a shooting war with Iran. What about Edward Snowden in Russia? What's he able to do? He can't do a lot at the moment. Um, he's still going through some of his papers, we believe. He's living fairly freely in Russia. But I think he's, and I only know this from what I hear, taken a bit of a back seat and saying he's done what he's done. He's just trying to get on with his life. OK, well, it's the, um, the 20th of... 22nd of February. 22nd of February at the SLV, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We only decided yesterday that we were going to call it, so we haven't got speakers or anything yet, but we assumed, uh, we're assuming that the Greens will send someone along and the parliamentarians, you know, the group of 11 will have someone along as well, and human rights lawyers, yeah. Is it possible for Julian to know the support that's coming from outside? Yeah, he does know. 
he does know, he is aware, and he actually sent us, um, just about a few weeks back now, sent us a letter saying, you know, thanking us for all the work we're doing in Melbourne. Because it is particularly, things are going on all around the world, all around the world. In that context, people across Europe and the United States are doing things at Australian embassies, calling on the Australian government to do something for their bloke. But Julian has pointed out that it's particularly meaningful for him that things are happening in Melbourne, as it would be were any of us Melbournians in a similar situation. And, of course, he's got a mother and a father and a, a wife and a yeah, son, yeah, at least. Yeah, well, he's got sons. Sons. Um, he's got a, a mo- his mother's in Queensland. Yes. His um, father, John, lives just outside, of, just outside of Melbourne, on the outskirts of Melbourne, you could say. Must be hell for them. Absolutely shocking, mate. Absolutely shocking. You know, Christine's got her, her partner is very sick at the moment as well, so she's dealing with all that kind of stuff. John is, you know, I mean, he's getting on. It's killing him. I mean, I, I don't know Christine. Met her a few times, but um, with John because he lives in Melbourne, I see him quite regularly. He's been on the radio, my radio show, and I have lunch with him from time to time. I had dinner with him the other night, but um, you can see the effect on him. It's just, it's killing him, mate. As you could imagine, sort of for ten years, he's been fighting to get his son out of custody. And then, yeah. of course, you've got Julian's sons. Julian's sons, who are staying out of the media and basically not even referring to them. And a brother, Gabriel, his brother, went to visit him a, few, a couple of months ago now and was horrified by the state he was in. But, um, yeah, well, like every everyone is someone's son, someone's brother, someone's partner, you know. And the whole family, I know is absolutely devastated when they see video footage of him when John went to visit him in, in Belmarsh he said his, the spark is still there but it's hidden and when you see the um, video footage of him as brief as it was and the court reports from his last court appearance he seemed like he didn't even know what was going on this guy's a brilliant mind not, not just in a mathematical type of way but he's quick He's a good conversationalist. He'll follows what you're saying. He'll he'll come out with jokes on top of you. You know, he's a very quick, sharp mind. And to see him mumbling and saying he didn't understand what was going on was just tragic. And this is all down. I've got to say, it's all down to the Australian government. Not just the current one, the previous one, the Rudd one, the Gillard one. They've all kowtowed to the. United States, as I say, their hands are tied by Uncle Sam's apron strings. We need to get the Australian government to get off its ass. And that's activist and broadcaster Jacob Gregg. And if you haven't already signed in to give your support to get Julian out of these prisons and not be sent to America, have a look on the web pages and find... Julian Assange, if you put Julian Assange in, support for Julian Assange, I'm sure you'll find a web page there that you can latch on to to do your bit to make sure that this can, doesn't continue, this farce of driving him mad in a prison in the kingdom of, well, it's now the United Kingdom, isn't it? So do your bit, we'll do our bit, and remember the 22nd of February outside the State Library, and we can hope it's not too late by then. It's um, coming up to five o'clock, and to come looking at the, the mess in the Middle East, 
as we go into 2020 and talking about the reaction in the Pacific to the bushfires in Australia and the future prospects for activities in the Pacific in 2020. In the early morning of the 3rd of January, President Donald Trump authorised a drone strike that targeted and killed a prominent Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani. The senior leader was returning from a peace delegation with Saudi Arabian diplomats when his convoy was destroyed outside of Baghdad. In response, more than a dozen missiles were fired at Iraqi bases near where US troops are stationed. And just hours later, a Ukrainian airline was shot down over Iran with the head of the Revolutionary Guard apologising for the shooting and insisting it was a tragic mistake. Meanwhile, scores of Iraqis were killed following the latest US aerial assault, adding to the more than one million Iraqis who have died during the past 28 years as a consequence of US occupation, bombing and sanctions. And then there is Syria, where fighting is continuing in the northeast. I'm speaking with activist Dr Tim Anderson about this tragic beginning to 2020. There's a single war going on in the Middle East, and it's the intervention that is at the root of all of these problems. The problem is that the intervention is failing, and indeed the influence of the US is failing in the world, and that makes it very dangerous because it doesn't like to lose and it doesn't like to admit that it loses. So I was talking to a senior general in Syria a couple of months ago and he said, look, they're more dangerous when their power is in decline than when their power is much stronger. And he believes they want to punish the Syrian people. I was in the north of Syria and the war is still going on up there with Erdogan and the the various gangs and um, there's the complications by the separatist Kurds and so on. But the issue is being resolved in Syria and to some extent in Iraq also, but the US doesn't want to give up. That's the root of the problem. And so it's, it's causing conflict and violence, but it's not advancing its project. Well, looking to Iran, the US has been after this country for decades now. Ever since the revolution yes. 42 years ago, yeah. What's the situation there as you see it? So the situation in Iran is Iran is actually very strong. It's much stronger than it was 40 years ago, for example, when the U.S. set Saddam Hussein against it and tried to try and weaken both countries, basically. Um, they played them off against each other. Iran is now much stronger. It's advanced in a lot of ways that perhaps people aren't aware of because of the, the constant propaganda. But, for example, I think most significant is that in Iran, most school kids, the average school kid did a little bit over two years schooling uh, in 1979 at the end of the, the monarchy in Iran, and now they do 10 years schooling. So in terms of education and also health, Iran has advanced enormously under the Whatever you think of a religious or a semi-religious state, they've advanced enormously, and the UNDP bears that out. Um, it's stronger, it's militarily stronger. Internally, it's very coherent, and a lot of the honest uh, US commentators will recognise this, that there's very strong support for the government. There was a UNDP report in 2018 which showed that over 70% of the population trusts the national government. 
Now, that's almost double what the case is in the US. So all the propaganda about the people hating the government there, it's not true. It is true, of course, that there is pressures for liberalisation and there is dissatisfaction with the economy and, uh, in, in some respects, corruption and so on. But these are things that, that happen everywhere, basically. So Iran is a very stable country in many ways. Um, you wouldn't know by the US reports on the the protests, the first one over fuel rising, the second one over the mistaken shooting down of that plane at a time of very high tension, but it's very stable in many respects. But of course, it's subject to an economic war from the US. The Trump administration has ramped up the economic war uh, in a much greater way. Um, Obama was doing it um, quietly, but Trump has brought it out into the open, and that is having an impact. But Iran is big enough to be able to stabilise that. It, it, it had a serious recession in terms of negative growth um, last year, but that's predicted to flatten out this year. So Iran, despite all appearances to the contrary, is actually quite a stable state, quite a successful state. The sanctions against it have, in some respects, strengthened its economy because it's made a, a virtue out of necessity. For example, it now exports steel where it used to import steel. It has a lot of high-tech industries. Australia, for example, if there were normal trade relationships, would be most interested in the high-tech area of Iranian production, including robotics, including nanotechnology, for example, in return for Australia's primary commodities. So uh, Iran has moved ahead, but the main reason why both Israel and the US target Iran is because it, precisely that it's the most successful, large, strong, independent country in the Middle East, and it helps the independent struggles in pretty much all the other countries that are targeted by the big powers, that is to say Palestine, uh, the resistance in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, for example. The jealousy of Iran's influence is what drives US policy and uh, the hysteria in, in Tel Aviv. What percentage of those sanctions have they been able to overcome by increasing trade with other countries? Because um, Iran, I think about 70% of its exports are oil, that's hit it very hard. Of course, it's trying to compensate for that by selling oils to India and China in particular. Um, China is finding its way around that. China is happy to do business with Iran. The US is now trying to put more sanctions on China as a result of that. So Iran's being hit there, but Iran almost uniquely for oil-producing, oil-exporting exp countries has been trying to escape the, if you like, the oil curse there. That is to say they've been really focusing on the knowledge economy and in high-tech areas. That is to say to not rely on oil exports. It's a great trap that, that oil exporters get into. They become lazy. They don't develop their agriculture. They don't develop their other sectors and so on. But Iran has to some extent, to a fair extent, been um, separate. For example, it exports motor vehicles around the world. It exports motor vehicles to very many countries in the Middle East and in Africa, for example. So it has other industries, and um, it's but it's being hit at the moment by the, the U.S. blockade. I mean, the U.S. blockade of Iran is showing that the U.S., for all its failing influence in the world, is still dominant in many respects, that is to say it's still a unipolar system because the US can influence events around the world because people depend on the US dollar and they depend on the SWIFT financial transaction system, although it's based in Europe, but it's still controlled by the US. So the Trump 
regime is more or less accelerating efforts by some of the other big players to develop alternatives, but that hasn't happened yet. That's why the late Hugo Chavez said, and one of these Syrian generals said, we're still in a unipolar world. We are moving to a, a multipolar world, but the old system hasn't died yet, and the new one hasn't properly been born. It's a transition system. I don't know a lot about economics, but I'm just wondering about all these countries that the US has sanctions against, or as you say, economic war. How does that also impact on the US itself? Yes, it does, uh, particularly China, of course. You, you notice that um, Trump is talking about cutting a trade deal with China. That's his method. He wants to create a crisis, cr create an intimidation, abuse, and so on, and then try and cut a deal on favourable terms. That's his one trick. He's a one-trick pony in that sort of sense. As a real estate person, that's the way he used to deal. Uh, I don't think it's going to work with China. Um, it's not going to work with Iran either, basically. But it's true, the US has had sanctions on more than 25 countries and the third party impact are on almost the entire world basically so he's made enemies of his supposed allies the Europeans you know trying to block the gas pipeline from Russia to Germany that's been an obsession which has failed is failing basically that pipeline is delayed a bit but still going to happen and he's trying to do it with China, which is was the biggest, um, I believe, the biggest trade partner with the U.S. And indeed, China and U.S. were codependent on each other for quite a long time, but China was making a lot of money out of the U.S. And, um, of course, it's going to impact on the U.S. Remember, the U.S. was, after Britain, was the one that talked about, told us about economic liberalism and how both sides can benefit from trade and to get away from the beggar by neighbor situation. It's strange now because really we're in the most illiberal of economic, international economic relations now with this huge network of, of sanctions uh, against so many countries. You've been to Iran recently? Yes, I was there for a second time about two or three months ago. Travelled around some of the cities, went to a number of universities and um, it was good for me to, to speak to a, a lot of people there who, because of course they do have a different perspective to the rest of the region. Uh, in Syria, for example, there's a very strong move away from um, religion in, in the state. In Iran, they're doing it, but they're, they're doing it in a fairly non-sectarian way and they're, they're very well-educated people and they understand those sort of relations. You know, For example, if you point out that their best relations are with Syria, which is the most secular of all of those states in the region, and with Venezuela, which was not Islamic. All of their best relationships are with non-Islamic states. So um, it's, uh, it was an eye-opener for me to, to visit that country. And, and one thing that strikes you is the culture is tremendously rich. It's got many languages, many cultures, a huge history there. And it's a very big country too. So it deserves study, I think. And particularly um, at a level, at a grassroots level, it would be so good to see more exchange between young people from Western English-speaking countries and the Middle East because the lack of that really undermines understandings in our culture. There are concerns, nevertheless, about human rights in Iran and particularly human rights of workers. Well, there are in every country, yeah, that's true. But um, in Iran, as I said, the human development uh, measures are far superior to most Western countries in, in recent decades. A lot of the... You know, the, a lot of the recent scandals, for example, the, the claim that 1,500 people were killed during the fuel 
protest is quite false, very, very false. There is something in, in, the, in the realm of perhaps 150 people. And where the violence entered into those protests, it's not a, an unknown pattern. But basically, there were genuine protests about the rise in, in fuel prices. Before that, the fuel prices were extremely low, amongst the lowest in the world. And with the economic pressures, it was one of those things that they probably had to do. There's debate about how they did it. But what happened with the protests was they were immediately infiltrated as happened in other countries, in Syria, for example, by these proxy groups that the U.S. has set up, the Mojadine, the ECALC, MEK, for example, and other groups, and people were being shot on the streets, people who weren't even in protests. Um, the, the security forces said that most of the people who had been shot were not engaged in any protests whatsoever. So there is a concerted U.S. campaign to bring a dirty war to any situation in an opportunistic way and then use all of the standard organs of, of US propaganda, the New York Times and the Guardian and Human Rights Watch and so on to try and elevate these sorts of issues as though the US had any concern for human rights anywhere. It's the worst human rights violator in the world. So we have to be really take a very serious grain of salt with things that are said about Iran and about China and about Syria and about virtually any country that comes in the crosshairs of US campaign. What's your knowledge of the situation of the Australian academic who's been held in Iran? The young woman, you remember there was two Australians who were arrested for flying a drone around some military area in Iran and they were exchanged for an Iranian man who was held here in Australia and wanted for extradition to the US for breaching their sanctions. I think there's something like about 50 scientists and academics, Iranians, held in the US. So there's a bit of, been a bit of exchange going on. There was an exchange with the British too. Now, this woman, to my understanding, her name escapes me, but she, I know the one she's talking about. She's Australian-British. She's involved with, I think she's linked to a French university called Sciences Po. And there's a couple of, uh, there's an expat Iranian woman, someone else. There's three of them that are being held there. The Iranian government is holding them on espionage-related charges. What, what it really means in this case, and there's been a number of cases like this, is that the Western media, the Western governments, and Amnesty International will say, oh, they're there because they criticised the government or because they were campaigning against compulsory hijab or something like this. In fact, there's a number of Western-funded, Western government-funded, particularly US government-funded campaigns to overthrow the constitutional order in Iran. And if Iran finds that academics are getting funded, I'm not saying this woman is, but this is what they're saying, if they find they're getting funded by US-funded campaigns to overthrow the government, as they recognise in Venezuela, in Cuba and so on, then they regard that as illegal and a threat against the country and a collaboration with foreign forces to interfere in their country. They take it very seriously. So none of these charges in the past have really been as simple as they're portrayed by the Western-aligned groups, including Amnesty International. Now, I can't say in the case of this woman, and I hope that they get some talks going, perhaps in exchange, to have her released. I think she may be British-Australian, working with a French university, which complicates things a little bit, but I think she seems to fall into that sort of category where the Iranian authorities think that her... Uh, work there and the work of uh, her older colleagues in the, in the French university is linked somehow to 
a Western campaign against Iran. Just at the weekend, the Australian warship took off for the Straits of Hormuz. That was announced many months ago. What's your situation on that one? Yes, it's very predictable, isn't it? Anything that the US is doing, any new war that the US wants to go into, the Australian subordinate regime feel obliged as part of their idea that they have some security guarantee from the US to engage in any new war and unfortunately you have to say it happened under Labor regimes and Conservative regimes, you know, but it seems a very foolish thing to do in these circumstances. They're not going to contribute very much. They're really just trying to get brownie points with the Trump regime and given that Iran just had naval exercises in the region with Russia and China, you can see that what they're facing is something well beyond their capacity. I mean, why would one Australian warship there in territorial waters which are typically guaranteed by the the countries at either sides of the strait, that is to say Oman and Iran, there has been relative peace, relative security for all of the traffic and the oil traffic through the Straits of Hormuz for decades. But the U.S. comes along and and creates a threat and then decides to present itself as the solution to the threat. This is the problem in the Middle East. The U.S. is creating fires, creating violence, and then interposing itself as supposedly the solution to that violence. And it's a very dangerous situation for Australian military personnel to get involved in. Just focus for a few moments on Cuba and Venezuela and also maybe Bolivia, what's happening in that area as we move into a new cent- a new decade? Well, Venezuela's survived the attempted coup last year, which was a very clumsy, uh, badly handled uh, effort, very open, you know, just proclaim- having proclaimed a, one of the members of parliament as the the new president now. He, it seems like he's being dumped by the US because he wasn't very effective. What they managed to do was rally some significant support back to the government. A government which has been in trouble, the Venezuelan government, for economic reasons because on the one hand there's an economic war, on the other hand they haven't been able to get control of their currency and that means prices are crazy and so they've had to rely on their social programs really to, to stabilise the situation. So a lot of the stories about starvation and so on are quite false, let's say extremely exaggerated because there's very strong social programs. Most of the government's budget is still going into these social programs but nevertheless the US has managed to um, damage a lot of the exports of Venezuelan oil. They've stolen billions of dollars of, of Venezuelan assets because Venezuela had a very very profitable business um, called Citgo in the US selling uh, oil and petrol at, at petrol, petrol stations into the US. The US has, uh, or the Trump regime has sabotaged that and seized, stolen a lot of Venezuelan assets and money. So now Venezuela is going through a restructuring. Actually, it's not quite as resilient as Iran has been, but it's going through restructuring. That's hurting Cuba. Cuba, which in, in, the, in the middle of all of the, the destabilization programs going on in Latin America, including the coup in Bolivia, is an island of stability, really. Cuba, you know, the U.S. was hoping that with the death of Fidel Castro, there would be a huge opportunity. In fact, things made a very smooth transition, um, not just from Fidel, but from 
that older generation to the new generation, which is you know, 30 years younger. So in Cuba, they're being affected by this, but Cuba has survived a lot of similar sorts of pressures. Now in Bolivia, the problem was that even though the government of Evo Morales was, was established for 10 years and had made huge advances, like, like the government of uh, Rafael Correa in Ecuador, really the most stable, best governments that delivered genuine benefits to people at the level of, of basic things such as poverty reduction, edu improved education, improved health and so on. Both those governments were sidelined in the case of Bolivia by a coup where the, the US managed to regain influence in the army and the police and threatened to kill the elected president there. In the case of Ecuador, it was a traitor, effectively, who promised to carry on Correa's legacy. And when he got into power, he rejected the entire platform of his party and rejected his party, effectively. And uh, this is Lenin Moreno. And went straight back to Washington and to the IMF. So you've had regressions there. In the rest of Latin America, you've got an extreme right-wing regime in, in Brazil, but it's very unpopular, unsurprisingly. You've had the return of a, a centre-left government in Argentina, which is um, a counter-movement, and similarly in, in Mexico, you've got a centre-left government in Mexico. So there's, there's a constant struggle going on politically, and at the root of the problems and the destabilisation is the same would be imperial power as you have in the Middle East and, and for that reason uh, Latin America and the Middle East are facing very similar destabilisation problems from what is effectively a dying empire. Well that dying empire is affecting so many people around the world though that's the problem isn't it? Absolutely um, this is what the Syrian general was saying to me he said that the, the empire in decline is more dangerous than when it is when it's at the height of its power it can't admit losing, it doesn't want to admit losing. It resents the people that have resisted it. It wants to punish them. This is what the Syrians are saying, that they want to punish us. They know that they've lost the war in Syria, but they keep it going. They keep it going in Idlib. They keep it going with Erdogan, with his ambitions to dominate parts of Syria still. Now he's pushed his ambitions across the Mediterranean, violating Greek sovereignty and trying to shore up a failing you know one of the one of the warlords in Libyan terrible Libyan situation there which seems to be a failing gambit for Erdogan also but he's stepped on a lot of toes to do that so he has those illusions the, the Kurds in Syria which are really driven by the the Kurdish separatists in Turkey they also have that illusion that so long as the US is there there's a chance that they can push their separatist agenda for a, for a Rojava, which would be a stepping stone to uh, a separatist slice out of Turkey too. So intervention creates a, a huge number of very bad spin-off effects and apart from the intervention itself and that's really at the root of all of this, um, all of the problems in the, not all of the problems, but all of the major conflicts in the Middle East and in Latin America. Thank you once again, Tim. And that Tim is Dr. Tim Anderson. And you're listening to 3CR, it's 5.22. The Setting Sun Film Festival in Melbourne's West is calling for entries until 31st of January. Enter your short or feature film into our international festival with the cult following and see your film screen at Yarraville's Art Deco Sun Theatre in May. 
The festival runs for seven days and features a culturally diverse program that includes Australia's first female filmmakers program and a wide range of categories and genres. Lots of prizes to win. All details on our website, settingsun.com.au. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. And for this first program for 2020, for Tuesday Home Time, it's welcome back to journalists and researcher Nick McClellan. Focusing first on the bushfires here in Australia and the reaction by the, the nations in the Pacific. Well, it's interesting. I um, put out a, an email the other day to colleagues talking about the initiatives being taken by Pacific neighbours in Vanuatu, in Fiji, in Papua New Guinea, to send their solidarity and their support to Australia for the bushfires. You know, there's been all sorts of initiatives. Vanuatu has donated money to the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. Organisations and and community groups in the Pacific have been fundraising to send money. Uh, The Papua New Guinea government and and the Fiji government have both announced that they'll send military uh, troops to assist with clean-up uh, in uh, bushfire-affected regions. A number of Papua New Guinea uh, engineers are already heading towards uh, East Gippsland to help with uh, clearing the roads that have been badly damaged by tree falls and so on. And I got a response back with someone saying, oh, look, these are poor countries. Tell them to save their money. And I think that's a real misunderstanding of the situation. The Pacific nations feel that they're the sovereign equal of Australia, They see Australia and Australians as neighbours and it's what you do as a neighbour at a time of crisis that you assist people, particularly the most vulnerable, the Indigenous communities in East Gippsland and South Coast New South Wales that have been ravaged by these fires, uh, people who've lost their jobs, their homes, uh, their livelihoods. It's just a natural reaction. So I was sort of surprised by that response, that why, why would people in the Pacific want to help Australia? because it's what neighbours do. And indeed, it's what Pacific Islands have been calling on Australia to do for for many years in response to the climate emergency. They want Australia, as a country in the region, as a member of the Pacific Islands Forum, and as the largest economy, largest society, largest and most wealthiest country in the region, to act like a good neighbour, to advance policies and to implement policies that will look after the interests of the of the neighbourhood. You know, ironically, Scott Morrison was off holidaying in the Pacific Islands uh, in Hawaii last year at the time where this issue peaked. You know, the bushfire tragically and ironically has brought this home to a much wider band of Australians that were already concerned about the climate emergency. This is a, a regional and global issue and we need a regional and global response. And yet successive Australian governments, particularly, you know, under the coalition, have blocked that regional and global response, whether at the Pacific Islands Forum or at the global climate negotiations, uh, most recently in Madrid. Yes, I'm thinking back about the Pacific Forum meeting. He didn't go down too well at all in that one, did he? And the, the one before that, he didn't even go. We've talked about this previously on on your program where, you know, Scott Morrison stood against the tide and the consensus of Pacific opinion, including Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand, that there needs to be stronger action on 
are this. And it's one of the central failures of the Australian media to not understand how Pacific countries are organising. See, last year, um, building on successive work, Pacific Island countries, Forum Island countries, have been building stronger links with the United Nations, particularly the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, and with the European Union and other countries wanting to raise ambition on climate change. And there's a long way to go, as we know, uh, in the global level. Last May, in an unprecedented meeting, the UN Secretary-General travelled to Fiji and met with Pacific Island presidents, prime ministers, foreign ministers. The only country that wasn't represented at ministerial level was Australia. Um, you know, the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand went, the President of the Marshall Islands, Prime Minister of Tuvalu were all there. We sent a senior official from the Department of Foreign Affairs, not even a government minister. And the reason for that meeting was that Guterres realises that small island developing states make up a quarter of the membership of the UN and are a crucial player in global negotiations on climate change. They don't carry much economic or political weight. They don't uh, certainly emit emissions in any substantial, measurable way, but they play a role in advancing more ambitious, higher ambitions within the global negotiations. They've been the ones who've been pushing uh, for years to bring temperatures and targets down below 1.5 degrees Celsius, not the 2 degree that Kevin Rudd and co were pushing a decade ago. This is something that the Pacific's done for, for many, many years. And the Pacific leaders were hoping to use this visit by the UN Secretary-General to go to the forum and then to take a united position from the forum, which was held in August in Tuvalu, to the September meeting held in New York called the Climate Action Summit. Guterres, uh, in the lead-up to Madrid, had been hoping to get more ambition, get countries to pledge action and so on. Now, they were sabotaged by a number of countries, that whole process during the year, most notably the United States, which is withdrawing from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Saudi Arabia, Brazil and others played their role. But Australia, which is supposed to be uh, on the international stage a progressive, developed OECD country, was a key player in sabotaging these efforts. And Scott Morrison's personal behaviour at the forum exemplified that, the leaders met in retreat for their annual retreat. Normally that takes sort of six or eight hours. This dragged off for 12 hours because Morrison was blocking the regional consensus on calling for much more urgent action on emissions, much more committed funding to adapt to the adverse effects of climate change and so on. You see that even today where senior ministers like Matt Canavan and Barnaby Joyce, where backbenchers and the far right of the Liberal Party are blocking any initiative even in the face of the human tragedy that we're facing with the bushfires. 2020 is going to be a big year for the Pacific and we'll have more also about the recent vote in Bougainville. Yeah, look, there's a whole range of issues coming up on the regional agenda. As you mentioned, uh, the Bougainville referendum has set the scene for a significant debate about self-determination and the right to political independence. Uh, you know, this is one of the last regions in the world with non-self-governing territories, to use the UN jargon, with colonies. So you have the United States with colonial administrations in Guam, in American Samoa. You have the French, obviously, in French Polynesia, New Caledonia, Wallace and Futuna, and, and so on. 
there's a, a real bubble in the air in the Pacific that while governments are happy to talk about human rights, their reluctance to talk about self-determination and political independence. But the issue just keeps coming back onto the regional agenda. Uh, the strong, overwhelming vote for independence in Bougainville in November, early December, 97% of people voting in favour of independence, only 3% calling for staying within Papua New Guinea with greater autonomy, is, is a clear mandate for the autonomous Bougainville government to now negotiate with the PNG government about a transition towards uh, full sovereignty. That's going to take some time, but certainly that will be played out in coming months. Regional bodies like the Melanesian Spearhead Group, the Pacific Islands Forum, will, I think, be dragged into that discussion, even if they don't want to. New Caledonia, too, will be holding another referendum on self-determination in September, the 6th of September, after... The last referendum held in November 2018, there was a strong showing by the independence movement, the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front. Uh, they got 43% of people voting in favour of independence, much higher than opinion polling was suggesting uh, in the lead-up to the referendum. And under the Namir Accord, the framework agreement that governs New Caledonian politics, possible to hold a second and indeed even a third referendum. So both the French government the independence movement and, and the independence parties have agreed to proceed to another vote in um, September. Just last weekend, uh, there was a major gathering of independence movement people in New Caledonia beginning to try and build unity across the different political parties that support independence and to, to develop a joint campaign in the lead-up to the vote. The obvious issue, too, on the regional agenda is West Papua. You know, the Indonesian government has, like others, uh, engaged in uh, increased activity in the Pacific, trying to win over support from Pacific Island governments. But there's very strong support at community level for uh, West Papuan independence. And we've seen over the last six to 12 months significant violations of human rights by the Indonesian police and military forces, beginning in Duga Regency, uh, following the shooting in December 2018 of some road workers, uh, uh, an incredible police crackdown, uh, military crackdown in that uh, district of, of West Papua uh, that's led to tens of thousands of people being, being displaced from their homes. More recently, protests and riots in uh, major cities, uh, Jayapura, Wamana, Sorong and other places uh, in response to acts of racism and repression. Once again, seeing the Indonesian police and military come out heavy-handed to attack protesters. This year, Vanuatu... Uh, a long-standing supporter of the West Papua Nationalist Movement will be the host of the forum. July 30th, 2020 is the 40th anniversary of independence. Vanuatu will be hosting this year's forum leaders meeting um, and that'll be a, a major focal point. Both the climate issue and the West Papua issue will be pushed by the Vanuatu government. They've got elections in March, so there may be a change of leadership, but I think there's bipartisan support for both those issues to be high on the the forum agenda. Uh, Fiji too is celebrating uh, anniversary, the 50th anniversary of independence. Fiji was independent in October 1970, uh, so this year will be the 50th anniversary of Fiji's independence, and indeed they're hosting the forum next year, 2021. So both Vanuatu and Fiji will be very active in pushing the issue of uh, climate change, and that's going to cause problems for the Australian government if they refuse to. Uh, uh, develop a more aggressive climate policy.
But also, Nick, you have to consider the stain on the Pacific with the the continuing holding of refugees, asylum seekers on Manus and Nauru and also in PNG itself. Yeah, look, I think it's an issue that's uh, that's gone off the boil a little bit. But one of the significant things that really passed unnoticed in Australia was elections last year that saw the defeat of the government led by Baron Wonga. President Wonga of Nauru was one of the strongest supporters of uh, the refugee processing, offshore refugee processing policy that has been uh, advanced by successive governments, ALP and the uh, coalition. Uh, similarly, there was a change of leadership in Papua New Guinea with uh, James Marape taking over from Peter O'Neill. In both cases, uh, they've tried to downplay the refugee issue, but I think there's people now beginning to move in legal areas and so on to uh, try and change the policy on this. Uh, the you know, I think the bushfire crisis in Australia has taken away uh, awareness about things like the Medivac legislation and, and so on. But um, Nauru will be looking uh, to uh, shift policy, uh, concerned that Australia may be shifting resources away from uh, the vastly wasteful sort of spending that's been put into, into offshore processing, given other priorities are looming and the potential threat to the surplus that the bushfire crisis is creating. We haven't spoken a lot in the last year or so about the non-self-governing territories held by France in the east. This will be significant this year because President Macron, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, will be travelling to Tahiti in April. During his uh, term of office, Macron's pledged to visit all of the overseas collectivities, they call them, all the French colonies around the world in the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic, the Pacific. He visited New Caledonia a couple of years ago, as well as Australia, and uh, was very much promoting the idea of France as an Indo-Pacific power. Um, he pledged last year to go to French Polynesia, but put off the uh, the trip because of protests at the time uh, through the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement in France, which were really challenging his neoliberal policies at the domestic level. At the current state, Macron is pledged to go to... Uh, Tahiti sometime in mid-April and is planning to hold a one Oceania summit. This is a chance uh, for the French to talk with Pacific leaders about climate issues and about uh, oceans policy. You know, I've written some stuff about this because it's a significant uh, issue that France is now really seeking to uh, present itself as a climate goodie in comparison to the Trump administration, in comparison to the Morrison government seeing itself as an ally of uh, Pacific Island countries on the climate agenda. But France has its own strategic interests around uh, the oceans, for example, um, because of its overseas territories uh, in uh, the Pacific. Uh, there are 7 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone, 5 million in um, French Polynesia, another 1.2 million in New Caledonia, and more even at Clipperton Atoll, an uninhabited island in the north that's under French control. And those uh, 7 million square kilometres of uh, exclusive economic zone allow for the management and exploitation of marine resources. And that's incredibly significant when you look not only at uh, fisheries and tuna fisheries, but the potential long-term for things like seabed mining and deep ocean oil and gas exploration. And France is very much interested in maintaining its strategic presence in the Pacific because of the potential for maritime resource exploitation and the independence movements in French Polynesia 
under uh, the Tabini Huiratira movement and other groups have been campaigning to say, hang on, these are our resources and shouldn't be taken by the administering power. You only have to think of the way in which Australia has tried to cheat Timor-Leste out of its oil revenues um, in the Timor Gap to understand the significance and the potency of this issue for uh, uh, non-self-governing territories. This is Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR and I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. How active is the pro-independence movement in Tahiti? Still strong and active, but um, it hasn't been able to win a majority in recent years. Prime Minister, uh, sorry, President Oscar Temeru, former President Oscar Temeru, the leader of the main independence grouping, Tabini Huiratira, uh, was elected as president in 2004. He governed on and off uh, between 2004 and 2013 in French Polynesia, but there was a significant pressure on his government and indeed there were six changes no confidence through no confidence motions and votes and uh, parliamentary maneuvers and so on during that period uh, between 2004 2013 and so since that time president edward fritch has taken over he's um, uh, an autonomist as they use the term uh, someone who supports greater autonomy but within the french republic uh, so someone opposed to independence, but believing that there should be greater self-rule, greater self-management by French Polynesia. But the independence movement will, is still uh, has a strong social base there. Moatai Brotherson, uh, one of the next generation of independence leaders, currently serves as one of uh, the two French Polynesian representatives in the French National Assembly. And he's, uh, you know, a, a really charismatic figure and will probably play a key leadership role when uh, the ageing leader of the independence movement, Oscar Temeru, uh, moves from the, the public stage. It's pretty certain, too, that when Macron comes to French Polynesia, there'll be strong demonstrations and rallies and protests around the issue of uh, nuclear compensation. The, the churches, particularly the main Igwe's uh, Protestant Maui, the, the Protestant church in uh, French Polynesia, which is the largest denomination, community groups like Mururei Tato, uh, the Association of Former Workers who worked at the nuclear test sites during the 30 years of French testing, um, a young church group called Association 193. That's uh, 193 is the number of nuclear tests that France conducted between 1966 and 1996. Um, all those groups will be very actively calling on Macron to fulfil promises made by previous um, presidents like Francois Hollande to um, implement changes to France's compensation law to allow Polynesian workers, Polynesian communities who are affected by nuclear testing to gain compensation for health and environmental impacts. So that's going to be one of the big issues when Macron visits in, in April, that there'll be quite a lot of protest, I imagine, um, around this issue of nuclear compensation. You listed the number of non-self-governing territories there are in the Pacific, and I know there are others in other parts of the world. Where does this lead the decolonisation section of the United Nations? Is it a toothless tiger now? That's one of the problems that the major powers have been reluctant to engage with the structure that was created back in the 1960s to move all of the UN-listed territories to political independence. Um, there's only 16 territories still listed, non-self-governing territories, to use the UN jargon, 
a few British ones like Gibraltar and the Falklands, but uh, those in the Pacific include French Polynesia, New Caledonia under the French, Tokelau under New Zealand, and the American territories, Guam and uh, American Samoa. Um, the Americans have um, military bases in Guam that are really crucial for their strategic containment of China. About a third of the land area of Guam is military-controlled, and so um, there's going to be a reluctance on the part of the Trump administration to address UN concerns, even though there's a strong Chamorro movement, the indigenous uh, people of Guam are calling for decolonisation. There's pressure on the French as well, uh, particularly in New Caledonia, with the push for another referendum this year. But the French have been reluctant to acknowledge French Polynesia. When uh, the Pacific countries like Solomon Islands, Nauru, Tuvalu put forward a motion at the UN General Assembly in 2013 to reinscribe, to relist French Polynesia on the UN list, uh, France was vehemently opposed. And in a fit of pique ever since uh, that decision in 2013, France has refused to engage with the Special Committee on Decolonisation. And, you know, the issues dropped off the agenda internationally uh, for many countries. The Chinese, who might potentially be allies, don't want to talk about it because it raises issues around Hong Kong, around Taiwan, Tibet, uh, the Uyghur nationalists and so on. So it's very hard for small island states to keep this agenda moving forward. But we've seen the West Papuan movement particularly very active. Um, Oscar Temer, who travels regularly to lobby the UN and uh, participate in UN seminars, and, and just reality keeps moving. I think also because the issue about national rights uh, is, is on the agenda in other places that are not within the UN framework, uh, when you think about Bougainville, West Papua, and also even in Europe, Scotland, Catalan, Corsica, and so on, uh, these sorts of questions will uh, keep coming forward whether through the UN Special Committee or through other mechanisms like the UN Human Rights Mechanisms. And how is p important is China to these debates? Well, China's uh, one of the key debates, and I think uh, I'm old enough to remember the debates in the Pacific about the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. You know, in the, in the latter part of the 20th century, there was major concern that Russia was seeking strategic advantage in the Pacific Islands. That was largely unfounded. The Soviet Union only had a couple of fishing deals with countries like Kiribati and Vanuatu. Uh, the Soviets never had any strategic presence in the Pacific. But there was a, a lot of talk about the Russian bogeyman or their Libyan and Cuban proxies in the 1980s and the 1990s at a time that countries were moving uh, particularly towards nuclear disarmament through the creation of the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty and things like that. But China is a different kettle of fish today. China is a, a major economic power on the global stage, and the rise of China as an economic power, and related to that as a political and potentially military power, is uh, the defining feature of the early 21st century. Um, everyone in the world, from Donald Trump to, to Tokelau, is, is grappling with this question about how do you engage with China. It's obviously a debate in Australia. They're our largest trading partner, Australia and New Zealand, with China. Um, but we're locked into the ANZUS alliance and trailing the Americans on their policies of strategic containment of China. And so that sort of trap is being played out. For this reason, every Pacific Island country is grappling with the same question. How do you deal with China as a major partner in terms of trade, 
in terms of investment in infrastructure through state-owned corporations, banking systems like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, and so on, a potential market for tourists. 140 million Chinese nearly last year travelled as tourists around the world and the Pacific has relied on tourism from Europe, from America, from Australia, New Zealand. Why not Chinese tourists? And so, you know, the, that engagement with China as an economic partner is a central feature of pretty, ev- pretty much every Pacific country. But Pacific Island governments, too, are struggling with the question, do you support the one-China policy, or do you, as uh, a number of states have continued to do, support Taiwan? And last year we saw significant change where two out of the six Pacific Island countries that support Taiwan, that's Solomons and Kiribati, both swapped their diplomatic relations to Beijing, leaving Taipei. And so there's only four Pacific countries now supporting Taiwan. That's a global phenomenon. You know, a decade ago there were about 30-odd countries that supported Taiwan. Now it's down to about 15. So the numbers halved nearly in the last decade. Uh, having just said that, the, the strong vote uh, last week for uh, President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan, uh, the return of government uh, for President Tsai, is a, a pretty major sign that people in Taiwan uh, still want to maintain their political system uh, and uh, some of the advantages they have with the level of independence that they have from Beijing. We've seen the protests, of course, in Hong Kong too. And so people in the Pacific are watching politically what that means. But many governments uh, in the Pacific, Samoa, Fiji, uh, Papua New Guinea especially, but even some of the smaller countries are looking to China very strongly. Um, Even French Polynesia, which is a French dependency, um, there was a, a summit last year about the Belt and Road um, and President uh, Fritsch of French Polynesia, who's no radical, let me tell you, um, said, look, I don't care whether investors are American or Chinese. If they're honest, we're happy to take their money. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but not that much. Um, you know, So around the Pacific, despite the concern from Australia, which claims to be the partner of choice and is very actively ramping up its military and police engagement with the Pacific, in the face of the Chinese presence, there's still a lot of interest to engage with China amongst people in the Pacific. And of course, overshadowing all the issues we've talked about in the Pacific is climate change. Yeah, look, it's it's not the only issue on the regional agenda, but it's certainly one that is interconnected with everything. And I think you see this at the Pacific Islands Forum leaders meeting each year. One of the things that's been very clearly articulated is the need for the Pacific to speak with its own voice and to advance its own agenda in the face of this changing geopolitical context. You know, all the major powers are engaging with the Pacific at the moment. You know, you've got the Americans' Pacific Pledge, Australia's Pacific Step Up, New Zealand's Pacific Reset, Indonesia's got the Pacific Elevation um, you know, China's actively involved, Taiwan, uh, some Arab countries, Cuba, many other countries are engaging with the Pacific because they are seen as players in the climate issue and they have votes at the UN um, and so to that extent they're significant. But Pacific leaders uh, through the forum and through other sub-regional bodies are saying we have to talk about the issues that concern us. Obviously issues around development and livelihoods, um, issues around the oceans 
and controlling and managing the vast ocean arena that is the Pacific, particularly at a time when many countries are wanting to exploit uh, maritime resources like fisheries, deep-sea minerals, uh, oil and gas, and so on. And so one of the, the strongest messages that's coming out is what we've called the New Pacific Diplomacy. I contributed a chapter to a book published in 2015 uh, called The New Pacific Diplomacy, and people who are interested in this, you can download it for free from ANU Press, and it's a great collection that explains why Pacific Islanders want to advance their own agenda in the face where everyone's coming in and telling them what to do, from the Americans to the Chinese, the Australians to others. And part of that is driven by climate change. It's an existential security threat. It's an existential development threat. It exacerbates existing problems and creates new ones for vulnerable atoll nations, as it does for Australia and large countries. California's got wildfires. Australia's got wildfires. This is a global challenge but Pacific Islanders lack the resources to fully grapple with the changes that are needed. That's going to continue to be a central issue in regional politics. And many Pacific governments say to their geopolitical allies and partners and enemies, you can't have a Pacific policy unless you've got a climate change policy because climate change exacerbates, advances, damages all aspects of the economy, of society, of culture, of identity. Here we are living through bushfires as we speak today. You step outside and Melbourne's blanketed with the smoke from the bushfires. You know, the Pacific Islanders, there's a certain schadenfreude where Pacific governments are saying, see, this is not just a Pacific problem. This is a global problem that affects developed and developing countries. But you're a rich country that has resources to respond to the challenge of the bushfires. We lack many of the financial and technical resources needed to respond. So when Cyclone Winston hit Fiji, it caused $2 billion Fijian dollars worth of damage. And if the science is right, as we suspect it is, cyclones will be more intense in the future. Droughts will become longer. Bushfires more hazardous. Um, you know, the Australian media has failed to mention that there are bushfires currently in New Caledonia which is one of our closest neighbours and is facing the same sort of climatic challenges of drought in the northern province, of bushfires around the capital, as Australia is, on a smaller scale, certainly, compared to the horror of what we're seeing in South Coast New South Wales and East Gippsland. But, you know, we need to think of these as regional and global challenges, and we need to be working with our partners to address these challenges together. And I think this is a fundamental challenge to the Morrison government, and, frankly, the fundamental concern of Pacific Islanders, they believe that the Morrison government has been captured by the mining industry. Um, you know, you only have to look. His chief of staff, John Kunkel, is a former government relations advisor for Rio Tinto, a major mining company which is locked into the coal industry. And he was deputy CEO of the Minerals Council of Australia. This is the guy advising the Prime Minister. So it's going to take a community mobilisation in Australia to get the government to change policy, not just domestically, but also regionally, to address issues like stronger targets to reduce emissions much more urgently than anyone in government, Labor or Liberal, is talking about, to start developing plans for a just transition for the coal regions of Australia. You know, we know that power stations are going to close down in the Latrobe Valley. 
we know that the Hunter Valley over time is going to lose a lot of coal exports. And Newcastle is one of the biggest coal exporting ports in the world. Where's the government planning to think about jobs, alternative economic opportunities, new services, new renewable industries, new sustainable industries for regions like the Atherton Tablelands, like the Hunter Valley, like the Latrobe Valley. That's a real issue for working class people. And the notion that workers don't want to think about this is just nonsense. Um, there's a real need to look at initiatives like the Earth Worker Cooperative that's trying to think about using skills that workers already have and putting them to socially useful production. That's something that needs time and energy and resources and planning. And governments, both state and federal, are failing miserably in starting that sort of work or expanding that sort of work. The other question, of course, is financing and support for our neighbours. You know, the current government has refused to give money to the Green Climate Fund. Um, under Turnbull, there was a small grant given over a few years. That's running out. Um, the Green Climate Fund now is seeking replenishment from 2020 onwards. Um, and Australia, like the Trump administration, is refusing to commit funding to the Green Climate Fund. There's a whole lot of things that could be done, and it's really up to community pressure to start mobilising, to start organising, and to force all political parties, be they Labor, Liberal or whatever, to uh, really address the seriousness of the climate emergency that we're facing. Well, if they don't know now, Nick, there's not much hope for them, is there? The lobby that has blocked action is very strong. Just this week, Siemens, despite a lot of community lobbying and campaigning, has agreed to continue with its $29 million contract um, to support the Adani mine. So I think we're going to see ongoing contestation around efforts to build new coal-fired power stations in North Queensland, uh, to open up the Galilee Basin, to expand exports through Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. This struggle is there. I think the, the, the bushfires have scared a lot of people. It's a terrible sense. I was down in Gippsland uh, um, over the Christmas New Period and uh, seeing the smoke, we were far enough away, thank God, from the, uh, the fires in East Gippsland, but to see the smoke coming across and blanketing um, my, my father's house was uh, scary enough. Um, but that scared feeling, that fear, that anxiety needs to be transformed into political action. It needs to be transformed into campaigns to shift government, to shift business, to uh, isolate people who uh, are blocking action on climate change and uh, to really create innovative solutions um, and move around government if they get in the way. There's a real need to uh, mount divestment campaigns on companies, superannuation funds and others that refuse to address the seriousness of the emergency that we face. And I think that these fires, uh, um, still ongoing, um, are going to raise this issue at all levels of Australian society. We need to tap into new people who've been mobilised by the concern that they face from the reality this is not just a problem for small island states. This is a problem for everyone, and we all need to act together. We certainly do, and that's Nick McClellan, journalist, author, researcher. And that's my first program for 2020. But I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. But do stay tuned for Done By Law. Bye for now. <laughs> 